It's about 12% louder than normal, so I'm, I'm assuming you got one hour more of sleep this morning, so good morning. I'm glad you're here. Uh, what ambition do you have for your kids? If you have parents, if you are parents, you probably think about an ambition that you have for your kids. What do you want for your kids? What do you stress out for, for your kids? Do you want them to be happy or great or successful or safe or secure? And how do you define that? What would be in the list of things that would describe those ideas? Maybe it's the good grades. You want them to have good grades and be on the right sports teams and have the best extracurricular activities. And you are tempted to join the stress-inducing rat race of making sure your kids are at all the right things so success can be pursued. Because maybe you want them to get into college or a good college or a prestigious college. Or maybe you're thinking they just need to get a good degree so then they can get a good job or a recession-proof job, right? Or a career with prominence. Or maybe you're thinking a robust 401k or a healthy salary. Or maybe you have a further-looking perspective and you think, I want them to have a house in a particular neighborhood and a healthy family and a great life. We love our kids, and it is common, natural perhaps, to want something ambitious for our kids. And I know parents think about this a great deal because we love our kids and we don't want ill for our kids. We want the best for them. No one says, I want my kid to be mediocre. Or I want my kid to be at the bottom of the barrel. That'd be great. We want our kids to be great. And we have various definitions of what constitutes greatness. But the desire is universal. And likely similar to what you want for yourself. People want success. Even if you don't have kids, you want success. You want greatness. Greatness is desirable. We are ambitious for something better than what we have. Especially if we're looking at our kids. And this morning, we're going to look at a story and we get to peer over the shoulder as a mother comes to Jesus with these same desires for her boys. And Jesus will reveal that greatness in the kingdom comes by giving your life for others. Greatness in the kingdom comes by giving your life for others. So why don't you turn there to Matthew 20. It's toward the end of your Bible. We're going to be there, chapter 20 and verse 17. I would love for you to open a Bible, put it on your lap. Um, I'd love for you to see the words on the page and know that I'm not just making up a story for fun here today. Um, if, or if you want to open an app, that'd be fine too. Or if this is all new to you, just pull out your phone and Google Matthew 20 and type ESV and push go and it'll, a link will pop up for esv.org and that'll be a great place to look at your Bible. So after, or, and if you want a Bible later, I can give you a Bible. That'd be fantastic. So let's begin chapter 20, verse 17. This is the story. And Jesus, and as Jesus was coming, going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, and flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So the first thing you should notice, we've been in Matthew for a long time, and it's been in a particular context, and the first thing you need to notice about this story is that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. 
the royal city, the place of the temple, the place where the king of Israel would sit. And much of his ministry has not been in Jerusalem. It's been in Galilee, which is north, a long ways away from Jerusalem. But he's making his way south to Jerusalem. And if you know about the life of Jesus, specifically the end of the life of Jesus, you know that many big events happen in Jerusalem. And a lot of the most significant pieces of the story of Jesus, and frankly the story of the whole world, happen there in Jerusalem. And Jesus knows that as well. So as he is making his way to Jerusalem, to the place of the pinnacle of his ministry, the crux of his work on earth, he pulls his disciples aside and he tells them something very important is going to happen in Jerusalem. In your Bible, if you're looking at it, it may have a little subheading there. Mine says, Jesus foretells his death a third time. This is the third time he's done this. In the story of Matthew, he's done this two other times, once in Matthew 16 and once in Matthew 17. But before, the details were less. He, he said he would be delivered and he would be killed. That's what he said before, but this time he adds more details. And first, I want to point out, he calls himself the Son of Man. He has done this before, but it is important. Labeling himself as the Son of Man identifies him as the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Chosen One of the Scriptures. Daniel describes the Son of Man this way in Daniel 7, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there's royalty to the Son of Man. Dominion and glory and a kingdom. Nations, not one nation, nations belong to him, and his kingdom will not pass away. So because of this, it makes sense that Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom, right? It makes sense that as Matthew is telling this story about Jesus, one of the key things is, themes is kingdom and king. It's a key idea of his telling of Jesus' life. And Jesus uses this term, and there is a weight to it that these Jewish men, these disciples, would feel because they've been hearing about these stories since they were boys. The Son of Man, the Chosen One, who will have dominion, who will come conquering, who will have glory and a kingdom. They know that story, and now Jesus is putting together something unexpected. Jesus is saying, the Son of Man, the one who gets the kingdom and the glory, is going to die. Jesus is reminding them that he is the Son of Man, and he's going to die. And this means that this death that he's anticipating is not simply a tragic, unfortunate event, but something altogether unexpected. Because this is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is supposed to get a kingdom, not die. The Son of Man is supposed to have dominion, not be handed over to someone else with dominion. This is unexpected for the chosen one of God. So on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus is laying out for them that something catastrophic will happen in the royal city. Jesus says, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him. So already he's added a little element. There's an added element of judicial proceeding. Some institutional thing is going to happen. He will be condemned. 
and delivered over to the Gentiles, or that's another way of saying the nations outside of Israel, and he will be mocked and flogged and crucified. This is quite an expansion. This is bigger than just, as if it was small, uh, I will be killed. This is something more dramatic. This foretelling of his death has progressed from being killed after suffering under the chief priests and scribes to something, some type of institutional proceeding that ends with crucifixion. That is the way of executing criminals in the ancient days. And who could possibly be the Gentiles who could make a crucifixion a reality? You couldn't just do this. This wasn't common from any leader, any ruler, any nation. That tool is in the hands of the Romans. The Jews cannot do that. The scribes and the priests cannot require it. They would have needed to make a judgment and then hand over a prisoner to the Romans as an escalation of judgment. The Romans were the rulers of the empire, the greatest in the known world at the time, and the empire that included Israel. And it was their excruciating method of execution that was used to publicly kill and shame criminals on a cross on the side of a road. And Jesus is laying this all out, and he is aware of what is coming. He is aware where the road ends. And can you take some encouragement in that? Jesus was not surprised. He knew what would happen in Jerusalem. He knew how the chosen one would be ultimately greeted. And when he walked down the road toward the city, he knew where he was headed. And he went anyway. Be encouraged. That's amazing. If I would have known what was going to happen in Jerusalem, I would not have walked to Jerusalem. I would have walked somewhere else, probably the opposite direction. And yet, he's, he knows what's going to happen, and he's reminding the disciples of his coming death and describing what will happen in Jerusalem. Then he reminds them of something wonderful. He reminds them that the Son of Man will be raised. Every time he does this, every time he says the Son of Man is going to die, he also reminds them The Son of Man will be raised. The means and the method of the death have expanded, but the story of Jesus always ends the same way. He will be raised on the third day. That's good news, right? So he pulls them aside, and what is the response? In verse 20, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, I'm not sure how many people are traveling with Jesus, but it seems that there's more than just the 12 disciples. Otherwise, he would not have had to pull them aside, right? He could have just told them as they walked. But he pulls them aside to tell tell them about his death again. So there's obviously a group from which he pulls them aside. So there's a group of people traveling with them, and we don't know how big that group is. We don't know um, if it's just 13 people or 14 or, or 30 people. We're not sure. But there's a group, and one of those walking with Jesus is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And the sons of Zebedee are James and John, two of the disciples, two of the ones that were just pulled to the side. And she has heard the teaching of Jesus. She has heard the proclamation of this kingdom. She has heard the description of the Son of Man and heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man. She knows her Bible and has heard the way Jesus has talked. And she comes up to Jesus with a request. But before she asked, 
we find her kneeling. A posture of worship, of submission. Even though there's a level of familiarity with with her and Jesus, they know each other. Perhaps a great deal, we're not sure how much they know each other, but at very least, she is the mother of two of his disciples who have been disciples for a few years. They know each other, but she still comes in a posture of worship. She believes that Jesus is not just a man with some appealing sayings or teachings. So she comes and wants to ask him of something of him and kneels and gives a posture of worship. And Jesus says, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So what is she assuming? What is, what is in her mind? What is she thinking is true when she asks this of Jesus? One, she knows the kingdom is coming. That's good. She knows it is Jesus' kingdom and he will sit on the center throne. She is assuming those things to be true. And now she's asking something. She wants greatness and proximity for her boys. She is worshiping and assuming that Jesus would be on the throne, that he's going to win. And hey, when that happens, I want my boys to be really close to the throne. And this isn't language we use nowadays, but the right and left, well, because we don't talk about thrones a lot here in America. I don't know if you know that. But if there's a throne, there's a right and a left to the throne, and those are places of prominence. In ancient times, this would be the place for counselors or sons to sit. Picture maybe on the right, the heir to the throne, the person who would become king after the king dies. And then on the left, maybe the general of the army, so that these, this is a place of counsel. This is a place of importance, a place of authority. Because if the king wants to, to rule or govern or think about what wise action to do, he can turn to the right or to the left and ask, what, what should I do? How should I respond? How should I govern in this scenario? This is a big ask, right? This is ambitious. She wants something ambitious for her kids. And what do we think about this request? How does this feel? As you read this, are you thinking, yeah, that, that's completely reasonable? Or are you thinking, pump the brakes a little bit? It's a little strange, right? Especially on the heels of what Jesus was just talking about. He was just talking about his death and suffering. And this doesn't seem to match the tone of the conversation. And maybe, maybe their mother was not part of it, didn't know that part when they were pulled aside and told that third time. But James and John were there. And you would think, if they were at least, at least polite, they would say, Mom, I don't, I don't think this is a good time to ask this particular thing. But they don't. As though Jesus' third reminder of his death just go over their heads. Luke even says, that's a different guy who wrote a, different, or a story about Jesus as well. He says, at the same point in the story, that they did not grasp what was said. Jesus says, I'm going to die. He says it a third time. He reminds them the Son of Man is going to die. They don't get it. They're not grasping. They're not catching what he's saying. They're not picking up what he's putting down. And the request, this request of the mother, seems to be in tension with the way Jesus has been talking. If you can recall the last several weeks, the way of the kingdom is different than the way we think about things here. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first, right? Be like a child to enter the kingdom. 
The ask is the wrong ask because it is not based on the assumptions of the kingdom. But if you're remembering the last several weeks, Jesus also said the disciples would be on 12 thrones. And if a mother is thinking about Jesus on a throne, assuming he's going to win one day, and he said the 12 guys will be on thrones, and her boys on two thrones beside him, hmm, it'd be only natural to think, I would love for them to be close to Jesus. And maybe she's going, you know, if you don't ask, you never know. So we know there is something imperfect about her request, but I want to point out she's running in the right direction because she's running towards Jesus. And she is resting in some great ideas about the victory and the kingship of Jesus, even if the question, even if the ask is imperfect. And mothers, mamas, you love your kids, and there is much of this mom's example to take in your prayer for your kids. One, run to Jesus. Worship Jesus. Talk to Jesus on their behalf. Anticipate the victory of Jesus. Expect the kingdom of Jesus and know when you talk to Jesus, you're talking to the king of the kingdom. And ask that your kids are with Jesus. Ask that Jesus make them what he wants them to be and not what you would want them to be. And pray for your kids with the boldness displayed here from this mother. And you don't have to be specific like this mom, so you can, you don't, if you don't want to get it wrong, you can just go, Jesus, I want my kids to be close to you. However you see that best, make them close to you. That's a great prayer. That's a great way to talk to Jesus. And this mother loves her boys and has just put a big ask in front of Jesus, and how does he respond? In 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. And what is his tone? We don't know his tone. And that's actually a good little experiment you can do with yourself. Just assume, as you're reading your Bible, what, what is the tone here? And you're going to fill in a lot of tone that may or may not be there based on, based on you, not on the Bible. And that could be a good little experiment for yourself. But here, there's no tone described. There's no, he wasn't saying a, um, I don't think this is a rebuke. This is not a how dare you ask such a question. But there is an acknowledgement of imperfect or an ignorance about the request. And we know this, we've seen him rebuke before, right? We've, Matthew has described times when Jesus has rebuked someone. Remember his response to Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. Yikes. That's not what's going on here. But he says, you do not know what you are asking. You don't have a depth of knowledge about what you just asked of me. 
And I was trying to think of an example of how this might come about in normal life, and that's actually pretty hard. But one of the things I thought about is when my little boy asks me, when I'm about to go on a run and I'm going to go run 10 miles or something, and he says, oh, can I go on a run with you? Like, yeah, you, you don't really know what you're asking. That's going to be really miserable if you did that. Or we go to a restaurant and we, we go to a restaurant with the whole family and one of my boys has saved a bunch of coins, right? And they say, I can pay for dinner today. You don't really know what you're asking. You're not going to have any coins left and you're going to owe me a lot of other coins. Like it's going to be way more than that. And Jesus is saying, you, you don't understand what you just asked me. And this is where the context really puts a point on this. Jesus was just talking about his death, his future mocking, public mocking, public flogging, literally the ripping of flesh off of his back, and his crucifixion. They don't know what they are asking if they want to be close to Jesus. And Jesus just described the suffering he would experience when he gets to Jerusalem, to the royal city. His crowning is preceded by great suffering. And now he looks at James and John. He moves his, his gaze from the mother to James and John and says, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Are you able to drink the thing that I'm going to drink? And we don't really talk this way either anymore, but often, ta- ta- oftentimes in the Bible, to drink the cup is in- to endure suffering, to endure judgment. The wrath of God on evil is often described as a cup. Psalm 75 says it this way, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Or Isaiah 51 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And the dregs, the dregs is all the sediment of the grapes that rests at the bottom of the bottle or the bottom of the glass. They're usually very bitter. So you get through all the wine, and this is saying they even drink the dregs, the most bitter piece of the cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus was just talking about his death, and this actually puts some more weight on what is going to happen with his death. There is more of a purpose for the walk of the Son of Man to Jerusalem. He's planning to drink a cup. He's planning to take on judgment. And he turns to James and John, can you drink this cup? Can you endure this suffering? I just told you I'm going to be mocked and flogged and crucified. I'm going to be killed at the hands of men. Can you drink the cup of that kind of suffering? And they say, we are able. I don't know what to make of that answer. They are either incredibly bold, knowing what they know, knowing what Jesus said, and they say, yep, we can do that, or they don't know what they're replying to, and it's going right over their head. Maybe they just hear, can you drink the cup of the king? And they go, yeah, there's great stuff in the cup of the king. I can drink the cup of the king. But that's not what Jesus is saying, and that's not what they've asked, and they don't know. And Jesus responds saying, you will drink my cup. As though to say, you will experience suffering. And we know from history that both James and John suffered for the name of Jesus. 
with death and exile. They suffer for the king. They suffer with the king. And the next part of Jesus' response is one of humility. He says, I am not able to grant the seating arrangements in the kingdom. And this is amazing because even Jesus' response shows the character of the kingdom. He could have puffed himself up, right? Like any assistant manager would who has a little bit of power and knows access to the manager. He could have puffed himself up and said, I am someone with privilege and prestige and power and I know what door to knock on and when to knock on it. But he doesn't. This is a humble response, a fitting response that matches the character of the kingdom. He says, the Father does that, not me. And he leaves it at that. So there is this request for greatness in the kingdom and proximity to the king and the response is that that requires a route through suffering. And mamas, parents, if you take the example of this mom to pray for your kids to be close to Jesus, know that you are praying that they suffer to some degree. If you are praying your kids be like Jesus, if you are praying that your kids are close to Jesus, you are praying that they share in the sufferings of Jesus. That is the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom does not work with the defaults of this world. It does not fit with the way to measure success and accomplishment. And even the king of the kingdom walks through the cross before he sat on the throne. And I want you to pray this way. I just don't want you to pray ignorantly or unknowingly. It is a good prayer, though the answer is costly and not always pleasing. And as I've sat with this story, I've had to put some thought into it myself as I look at my four little kids at home and think, do I want you to just be happy and unaffected? Or would I rather you be close to Jesus, even if it means you get uncomfortable and life is not as, as easy as it would be otherwise? It's a good question to ask. What do we want for our kids? Do we want the right things for our kids? I want my kids to know the king. What do you want for your kids? What do you want for yourself Temporary comfort or connection with the king. And the king just answered the question and is still with this group headed down the road to Jerusalem. And there's a little bit of fallout from the answer. In verse 24, And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then what happens? The two with their mother go and ask this question and the other ten disciples heard about the request. And they're probably, they're probably right there. They're probably close. They're walking on a road. They're probably on the other side of the road or underneath a different tree. And they go, what? why are James and John and, and their mom talking with Jesus? What, what's going on? And I'm just picturing this 
this band of Jesus followers traveling to Jerusalem, you're going to hear what happened, right? It's not like it was something separate in another room in another building. They're walking on the, on the road. You're going to hear what James and John and their mom asked, and the 10 other disciples hear it, and they're ticked off. Of course, it's not explicit why. Why are they angry? Why are they indignant? Is it because they, they just could not believe that they would ask such a scandalous question of Jesus? Probably not. They're probably upset because James and John got to him first. And we, we know this because of the way Jesus responds. Jesus sees this as another opportunity to teach them how the kingdom is unlike all the defaults that they are used to, and frankly, the defaults that we are used to. And he reminds them again and again and again that the kingdom is upside down from what they expect. It is not about positioning and influence grabbing, influence peddling. It is not about grabbing the ear of the influencer so you can gain prominence and status and position. He has just finished saying, the first will be last and the last first. That you entered the kingdom like children. And now he's going to talk about it through the lens of the language of authority. Because authority is what was requested, right? We want to sit at your right and your left. We want the best seating arrangements because that's where there is some authority. That's what they were seeking. And Jesus says, you know how the rulers of the Gentiles or the nations exercise their authority. Or how the great leaders interact in the world. They lord it over. They exercise over, they use their authority to dominate others. And the default of this world is to say, yeah, I want to be on the top. I know this is how the world works and I want to be on the top. And that's what happens when I feel small and beat down, then I want authority so I can rule over someone else. And this is the description of authority abused. We have a tendency when we see authority abused to respond in one of two ways. We either take it as a model and assume that is how authority is exercised. And then we try to just get to the top so that we don't get damaged. Or we reject authority altogether. We assume authority abused is just authority. That's what authority is. And thus authority itself is illegitimate and should be discarded. But neither option, neither response is appropriate. Authority is part of the nature of being image bearers of God. We have authority in family, in work, in government, in stewardship, in cultivation, in craft, in our responsibilities. The problem is the world is broken and people in the world are broken. And often the example we see of authority exercised is authority abused. We see a broken picture. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you have seen a lot of broken examples, of domineering examples, of overbearing examples, of heavy-handed, arrogant examples. But my kingdom is different. And it shall not be so among you, he says. Greatness in the kingdom is not found in dominating others. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom is found by serving others. And here Jesus seems to channel the ambition of the disciples and the initial request from James and John and their mother. He doesn't just say, 
Don't think about greatness. Wrong question. Empty it from your mind. Just go over there and, and empty all that stuff. Don't think about that stuff anymore. He instead has them think about it in a new way, a kingdom way. If you would be great, you must be a servant. The person who lowers himself in order to give to another. This is the inverse of what the leaders above are, are doing, right? This is a completely different way to look at the world. Greatness is not being in a place where you can make others serve you, but instead greatness is found when you give yourself as a servant to others. And then he escalates. Whoever would be first must be your slave. There was no one lower in the ancient world. This is a dramatic way of saying, if you want to be the top, then you have to be the bottom. And the language of slavery here in Matthew is not the language of the chattel slavery we're familiar with here practiced in America. That was an egregious example that assumed that if the color of your skin was black, you were not human like other people. That was a stealing of the image of God, and that is not this. This is the language of having your whole life in service. All of you is given in service. And one writer described the slave's whole life as lived in service for which he can claim neither credit nor reward. He's not, he's not serving to get something. One who is solely committed to another. The word here is doulos, where we get the word doula, right? The servant that helps during a pregnancy or, or postpartum. They give themselves to serve a mother when she most needs help. This is the name of our ministry leader training that just started up for the year, Dulos, because we want to train people to give themselves to others in ministry. We want them to be a Dulos. Jesus is saying, if you would be great in the kingdom, you give yourself. I don't know, it's somewhere. You give yourself, you give your life, you place yourselves in service to others. You give yourself for their good. You put yourself in community. In, in our language, we would say you commit to a life group, and then when you're in a community, you disadvantage yourself for the sake of that community. Here, even authority is given as a means of service. If you have an office, if you have a position, if you have a station or responsibility, the posture there is one of service now in the kingdom. How do I love and serve others with this responsibility, with this position that I've been given? How do I give myself for their good? And even these 12 who Jesus said would sit on thrones, that's a position, right? He is saying that this is the posture. You give yourself in service, and that is where greatness lies. Because this is the pattern of the kingdom. This is the road to greatness in the kingdom. And the king, maybe because we're stuck in the now and how we think about things, maybe we think the king, he's exempt, right? Because our default way of thinking is so stuck in these normal ways of thinking. The king, surely the king sits above all this. He's got a bunch of servants underneath and they're all serving each other and it's great. But the king, the king's exempt, right? We would expect the king to come and to be served and to be taken care of for all to meet his needs. But friends, what does the king say? He says, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. This is profound. The Son of Man, the one who gets all dominion and glory in a kingdom with all peoples and nations, even the Son of Man does not come to be waited upon. Friends, no, the king is the greatest of all because he is the premier servant. The king comes serving. The king comes and does not lord it over or exercise over. He comes and gives his life even as the king. And the language is not metaphorical. He just said, I'm going to Jerusalem to be delivered over and mocked and flogged and crucified, literally spread across a cross. He literally has giving his life in mind. He is on the road that leads to death. And it is for service. It is for ransom, for buying back those who are lost, for buying back those who are captured, for restoring the many to relationship with him. Friends, Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom because he is the greatest servant in the kingdom. He gave his life to make a kingdom possible. He gave himself as a ransom so that those on the outside can be brought to the inside. And he put his life on the cross and spent it, enduring the cup so you can be rescued. The mighty king is the lowliest servant because he gave the most. And you have entrance into the kingdom because the king of the kingdom did what he encouraged others to do. He gave himself. And greatness in the kingdom comes by giving your life for others. And Jesus is the example. And friends, if you are not connected to the kingdom, run to Jesus. He gave himself as a ransom for you. And if you are in the kingdom and you have a desire to be great, do not look at the examples of the world for the measurement or the method of how to do that. Look to your king and give your life for others. That is the way of the kingdom because that is the way of the king. This morning, we get to share in the meal that the king gave us to show us that he has indeed given himself for us. And if you belong to Jesus, then this meal is for you. And during the next song, I would invite you to walk down the center here and Come take the bread and the cup. They're stacked together, so make sure you get both of them. And then return to your seats on the outside, and after the first or the next song, we're going to take them together. And if you have not trusted in Jesus, Jesus' life for your ransom, I would encourage you to take some time and to instead just pray and ask God to make himself known to you and to accept Jesus and his life as a ransom for you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, what a great servant you are. Thank you for giving us fully and willingly your life. Thank you for ransoming us. Thank you for serving us. Thank you for including us. Give us ambition for the greatness of the kingdom, that we would desire to follow your example and give our life to others. And Lord, for all the parents in this room, don't let us be satisfied with success for our kids defined by the world. That is small and broken. Let our kids be connected to Jesus, even if it is costly, even if it means less success here, less comfort here, 
less prestige here. We want our kids to know Jesus, to love Jesus, and to be close to Jesus. Holy Spirit, use this meal to point our eyes to the sacrifice of Jesus and grab the hearts of those who do not yet know Jesus. Encourage us as we remember his death and use these songs to give our hearts a fitting response to him. Amen.